The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we come into your presence. We are allowed to come into your presence and to talk with you and to make requests of you because of what Christ has done, and we give you thanks for that. And Father, now I ask you, I pray for my friends here who believe, that I pray for those here who don't believe, that you would work in them today and draw them to you. But for those who believe today, I pray, along with Paul in Ephesians, that you would enlighten the eyes of their hearts. You would open the eyes of their hearts that they might know the hope to which you have called them. Teach them. I pray that they might see the, the vast riches, the vast wealth that you have in them treasure of the inheritance, Lord, you value them so much. And I pray that you would also teach them and enlighten them so that they would understand the immeasurable greatness of your power that you have for them. The power that is like that which you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him on high, far above all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. You have great power for them, and would you teach them that? Enlighten the eyes of their hearts, I pray. Towards that end, Lord, open your scriptures and speak. We lack, we lack wisdom, we lack understanding, and you must give that. And so, Father, we come and pray. Commission the Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts and use your word towards that end. Would Christ be glorified here today, Lord? That's our hope and my prayer. Amen. If you take a dollar bill and you take it out, a U.S. dollar bill, and you turn it over and you look at, look at the top, right across the top, it will say the United States of America, and right beneath that it says, in God we trust. Now, forgive my pessimism, but I'm not sure that the United States of America is really in line with that sentiment these days. But I'm not primarily concerned with the United States of America. I am more concerned with the church in the United States of America. And more specifically, I'm concerned with this church in the United States of America. And even more specifically, I'm concerned with you and with me. Steve Clark, Evangelical Free Church, in God we trust, question mark. Really? Now, if you're a believer, we're members of this church, if you're a believer here, then yes, in a very real sense, in God you trust. You're not a Christian if that's not true. If you don't trust in him, you're not a believer. 
But for most of us here, we are believers, and so it's very real, it's very true. In God we trust. But moving a step below that, I'm most concerned when I look at my life and find that, in fact, in many areas of life, in many days, in many periods, I don't. I can't say here, now, in this way, in God I trust. In God I trust, yes, here, not so much. Is that true of you? It is true of you. And God wants to work. He wants to do a work to purify the divided hearts of his people. To draw us more closely, more, more intimately to him, that we might more fully trust him moment by moment, day by day, for our joy, for his glory, that we might rest in him. He wants to do a purifying work in his church. And we see that today in Acts chapter 19. Last week, the second half of chapter 18, we focused on another, related, but another gracious work of God in giving the ministry of the word to his people. We saw him doing that in the life of Apollos as he raised up Apollos through the ministry of the word and in the whole process he was preparing Apollos to go and be a minister of the word somewhere else in the city of Corinth. We saw that last week, a gracious work of God. But another part of that passage served to introduce to us the city of Ephesus and explain to us how it is that Paul kind of wound his way around the Mediterranean world to come back to Ephesus in our passage for today in chapter 19. So we're in Ephesus today. Look at the first half of the chapter. A number of chapters ago when we were looking at Paul's second missionary journey, we saw that he was stopped from going into the province of Asia. And now here we find that actually the door has been opened and he goes in and has a very fruitful ministry in this westernmost part of Turkey. Let me read the passage for today. This is Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid ha his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him and reasoning, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I assure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts bought, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. After Apollos' brief time in Ephesus, he passed on to Corinth, the minister there, and then Paul arrives, comes in through the mainland of Turkey, what would be Turkey today, comes to Ephesus. Ephesus was a significant city. It was a port on the very western end of what is Turkey today. And because it was a port, again, it was one of those central-type cities. All the roads in the area would lead to it. Commerce and people and culture passed through Ephesus. It's a significant place, again, and it was well-known for a couple of things in particular. One, it was a temple city for the goddess Artemis. We'll see more about that next week. But secondly, it was also well-known for being a center of occult practices and worship. A lot of the ancient world was like this, but Ephesus stood out above the rest. It was very focused on, gave a lot of attention to dealing with the demonic and the spiritual and the other world and all kinds of various spells and formulas and incantations and amulets and all kinds of stuff related to that. Ephesus was a center. It was well-known, almost proverbial for this sort of thing. It's no accident that Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, written later, deals more than his other letters, deals with the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This was front-burner stuff for Ephesus. Paul goes there begins to proclaim the gospel. And he does, and what he finds pretty quickly is some folks who call themselves disciples. Now that term's a little vague, and some of the, the conversation that follows has led a lot of folks to kind of be uncertain. Who are these people? What are they disciples of? Who do they follow? And that's not entirely clear, but what is clear is that the term disciple does not necessarily mean that the person is a Christian. Wide enough to allow for just being a follower. Think of how in the Gospels there were many folks who were disciples of Jesus who weren't actually genuinely saved. So it's not really clear, just from the term disciple, what these folks are like. And Paul, we notice, has some doubts. He meets them and he begins to interact with them and he notices that they are apparently missing something which the Bible says all true Christians have. They're missing the Spirit. He doesn't see it in them. And here's where they differ from Apollos last week. Apollos didn't understand everything, but Apollos had the Spirit. These guys don't. And so Paul asks in verse 2, when you believed, as you said you have, when you believed, did you receive the Spirit? And their answer is telling. They say, we have no idea what you're even talking about. We don't even know that the Spirit is, literally. 
And it doesn't mean that they have no concept of the existence of the Holy Spirit. They're followers of John, we see later, or at least they used to be followers of John. And John preached about the one who was coming who would baptize people in the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Old Testament's full of passages talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about the age of the Spirit to come. When, when Messiah would come, he would introduce a new period of human existence where the Spirit would be poured out. So they know the Holy Spirit exists. What they're saying is, he's poured out? It, he's received now? We didn't even know that he was right now, currently, here. That's news. And so Paul explains some things. It seems that what the case is that they had been followers of John, baptized by John, and John, as he did with many disciples, says, I must decrease, he must increase, and he's pointing people to Jesus. And somewhere in the middle, the, the handoff is fumbled, and these guys get stuck between John and Jesus, knowing that they're supposed to follow him in some way, but not really knowing what he's about. Paul clarifies that. He explains, John was pointing to the one who was to come, Jesus. They're baptized in the name of Jesus, and the new age breaks out on them. A mini Pentecost on these 12. It's really significant. The 12, the number 12 is a very significant number. Recall from perhaps past chapters that why were there 12 apostles and 11 wouldn't do and 13 wouldn't do? 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, and the, the scriptures foretold that when God came and visited, when the Messiah came, the new age that would break out would be the gathering in of the remnant of Israel. There had to be 12. Not 11, not 13. And what's happening here in Ephesus is the whole thing's kind of happening again. The center for missions is kind of moving from Jerusalem to Antioch and now here to Ephesus. He's going to spend three years here evangelizing a very wide area. And it seems that what God is doing is telling these folks who are stuck between John and Jesus that no, in fact, the age of Messiah has dawned. He's giving them a little mini, mini Pentecost again, showing them what you were waiting for has come. The Spirit poured out and they prophesy and speak in tongues. And I think that's why when he then moves into the synagogue to reason with them, he receives a little better welcome than he usually does. He's there for three months before they chase him out. And only some people oppose him. Usually it's much quicker and much more holistic, the opposition. He's arguing, it says, about the kingdom. What would he be talking about there? The messianic kingdom in Exhibit A are these 12 guys exhibiting the signs of the messianic kingdom. So that must have gathered some attention. Probably won him a hearing there for a little while. But eventually, they do chase him out, and he moves on next door, continues to witness. He's talking about the, the kingdom that was to come, and now he's speaking in the hall of Tyrannus for years, and the whole region is evangelized. Verses 11 to 20 then kind of loop back and tell us, give us another snapshot of that two-plus-year period and other things that were going on. While Paul's teaching daily in this hall, first in the synagogue, then in the hall, there are some other things that are going on in the area. God is doing some amazing things, some extraordinary signs. Not 
the same old ordinary stuff that we'd seen him do before. This is extraordinary stuff, and God was doing it. It was, it was clear that God was doing it, and it was also clear that it was Jesus, that, that something about that name Jesus, that's where the power was. It says that handkerchiefs and whatnot were, were able to cause healing. And people got that it was about Jesus, not about Paul, because when we see the, the copycats arise there, the, the exorcists, the sons of Sceva, they don't try to use the name of Paul, they use the name of Jesus. They figure, he's powerful, we'll use him in our family business of casting out demons. And, and that didn't work. The demon that they're trying to cast out, he knows Jesus and he's heard of Paul, but he has no respect for them. He can't use the name of Jesus. He beats them up, overcomes them, and everybody in town hears about it. There was a power encounter there between a demon and somebody who tried to use the name of Jesus, and the demon acknowledged, I know Jesus, but I don't bow the knee to people who try to use the name of Jesus. It was heard all over town, and fear covered the town, and the name of Jesus was extolled. That means lifted up, magnified. Everybody heard about it. It had a particular effect on the Christians there in town. See, verse 18 is talking about those who already were believers. The NAS translation handles that very well. It says those who had believed. These are Christians. And then when this happens in town, it affects them in a pretty radical way. What do they do? Well, they begin to confess their sin, and they, they bring out all this stuff, and they burn it. So it talks about their magic books and whatnot. Now, it's important to understand, forgetting what's going on in this, in this passage here, it's important to understand the magic concept, the magic books idea. This is not like, in, in our country today, the, the occult is kind of gathering steam, and there are a lot of little things that people do kind of for kicks. I was at the, uh, recently I was at the, uh, the farmer's market downtown and there was somebody reading tarot cards there in a little booth and you can go and have your fortune told in different places. You can read the horoscope in, in different publications. But people kind of do that, generally speaking in America, kind of do that for fun. Not everybody, but people kind of think, this is kind of cute and entertaining. Let's just do that. But most people don't order their lives by it. That was not the case in Ephesus. The magic going on in Ephesus was central to life. It's how you made life work, how you ordered it, made it come out in good ways. You had a family magic book. And not literally, but suppose, think of it like this. You would have had a family magic book, and section one would have said fertility. And chapter one of section one is of the land. Chapter two, of your livestock. Chapter three, of your spouse, usually the wife. And each of those chapters would have, here's the spell, here's the formula, here's the special food, the powder, the jewelry, the amulet, the, the various incantation, the magic words, the special things that you say or do or act or eat so as to make your land produce. There are forces and powers out there, and you can control them in certain ways and make an outcome happen that you want. Or here's what you do for your livestock. Here's what you do for your spouse. And section two would have been about protection. Would have been a chapter in that about here's what you say or do or how you act or what you, different things you perform or sacrifice you offer to protect yourself from the spirit who inhabits that woods right over there. And here's what you do to protect yourself from your neighbor's curse. 
against you. And here's what you do to protect yourself from your business rivals. And then there would have been a section about prosperity. Here's what you do to make your hand successful, militarily or financially. You see, all of these things touch every area of life. And the thinking is, and the reality is, is that there are powers out there. We Westerners kind of poo-poo this stuff. There are powers out there that affect life. And here's ways to control them and manipulate them and appease them or incite them against the other. It's woven into every piece of their existence in Ephesus. And if you stop doing that, but your neighbor still is, what's going to happen when he curses you and you don't offer the defending formula? You're in trouble. What happens when the neighboring city decides to attack you and you turn away from all the stuff that you've used to defend yourself? You're in trouble. But yet these folks here, verses 18 and 19, they see Jesus lifted up and extolled, and they say all this stuff that we have woven through our lives and relied on, we throw it on the fire. We've trusted in these various formulas and rituals and magic spells, and we chuck it. We don't trust anymore. We turn all of our allegiance and trust to Jesus. Millions of dollars worth of things they threw on the fire. They didn't sell it. They didn't pass it on to somebody else. They destroyed it. Their trust is fully and finally transferred from that stuff to Christ. They're Christians. In God we trust. And now in significant areas of life, they're saying, really, in God we trust. We throw away, we destroy, we permanently move on from this other stuff that we've trusted in. It's a significant change. And it's all about what are you trusting in to make your life work, to secure yourself and to prosper yourself. It's very significant. They are radically altered, so radically that verse 20 says, thus so in this manner, the gospel then ran in power because people were so changed. That's the passage. Something going on in Ephesus for a couple of years. Two little snapshots. Could draw two observations out of them and bring them together at the end to form one overarching point. Let me begin with the first observation. My first observation is related to what this passage shows us about God's activity in and through Jesus. So here's the first observation. God gives to his people the gift of the Lord Christ. God gives to his people a great gift a marvelous gift. He, he's doing something. He gives to his people the great gift of the Lord Christ, who is Jesus. Now, in a real sense, those two terms, Lord Christ, are, biblically speaking, almost redundant. But they have slightly different nuances, and we might not realize that they're kind of redundant, so I'm going to use both of them. The Lord Christ. Think of other words for Lord, Master, Ruler, King, 
Sovereign One. Lord. And Messiah, Christ, those are the same words in different languages. Biblically speaking, I say they're kind of redundant because there's no such thing in the Bible as the Messiah who's not the ruler. The Christ is the king. The hope throughout the whole Old Testament was that Messiah would come. And one significant strand of that, of course, was that the Messiah in the line of David, the messianic king, would come and he would rule over God's kingdom here on earth, exercising total authority from sea to sea, from the corners of the earth. He would rule. He's the king, the Lord, the Messiah. To say that he, he gives us the Lord Christ is not to say two things, it's to say one thing emphatically. Jesus is master over everything, everywhere. We see it several ways in this passage. First, some phraseology. Three times we see the phrase, the name of the Lord Jesus. It's in verse 5. They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. 13, some Christians sought to use the name of the Lord Jesus. 18, 17, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Combine that with the idea twice expressed of the word of the Lord, and you have something being repeated here. There's a, there's a drumbeat to this passage. It's not that the word Lord's never used anywhere else in the Bible or anywhere else in the book of Acts, but it's repeated a number of times here, and we begin to see something kind of rising up on our minds. Lord, 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 Lord. And then they talk about the kingdom in the synagogue. Secondly, we see in the mini-Pentecost, there's something going on there. What, what's the mini-Pentecost about? talked about this already. It's about establishing the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. They knew a messianic kingdom was coming. They didn't know that Jesus was the one who brought that kingdom in until it happens and that the, the gift of the Spirit is poured out. So it establishes in the eyes of everybody what Ezekiel 36 was talking about, what Joel 2 was talking about, that happens in Jesus Therefore, he's the Messiah. He's the Messianic King, this Lord Jesus. But finally, principally, we see Jesus as Christ the Lord in verses 11 to 16, the power encounter between himself and the demonic. Luke uses this, this description of extraordinary miracles as in not like the ordinary stuff that had been happening before, like a man made blind or a, a man crippled from birth being able to walk or the, the random demon cast out of the, out of the woman in Philippi. This stuff's extraordinary. Constantly. And it got so crazy that Paul's, Paul, the messenger, didn't even have to go carry the message. They could just take clothing that had touched Paul and go and touch other people with it and stuff happened. You look at that and you see Jesus, and it was clear it was all about Jesus, that Jesus is showing himself as Messiah and as Lord in that, as Messiah in that he is delivering people. The Messiah was the Savior. He's delivering people, especially primarily from sin, but here we see from the effects even of sin, from things like disease. He's chasing disease out of people everywhere through handkerchiefs. You look at that and you see, here's the compassion of Jesus, the mercy, 
tenderness and the power. He's the Lord. There's a power encounter going on here. And he shows himself as the one who rules over all of these demonic forces and over all of the the health problems. Everywhere his name is carried, he fixes things, delivering people in power. He is the Lord Christ. Think about that. You have to stop and think about that because the great danger for us, particularly the fact that most of us here are Christians, the great danger for us is that this is so familiar that it doesn't gain any traction with this anymore. You hear me say that Jesus is the Lord Christ and start talking about Lord, and, and you think, of course, I mean, I've known that forever. I sure hope point two is not that the sky is blue because I want to learn something here this morning. But you have to stop and think about this because the passage is bringing it up in several different ways and it matters in relation to this issue of trust. What we're working on is in God I trust, but down here, do I trust in God today in this situation? This relates. Listen to this. This is from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, writing back to this church later, reminds them of something. He says, Christ has been seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. And God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Did you hear the last sentence? He's lifted up. He's high. He's reigning. He, he piles on the terms. He's over every power, every authority, every dominion. He's over all things. All things are under his feet, and God gave him as head over all things to the church. God gave this one to us, to you. You've got to think that through. He gave you the Lord Christ. He gave him first in the cross and in in the lifting up of him. But after he was lifted up, after all things were put under his feet, as that reigning one, he gave him to the church. Why? Well, there's a couple ways you could answer that. Why? Because he loves the church. He looks at the church and he says, this is an incredible, precious treasure to me. Paul prayed that we would understand how much of a precious treasure we are to him. And the next thing he prays we'd understand is that we would know the power for us given in this Christ. So we can answer it. Why? Because he loves us. But there's another reason we could answer. There's another way we could answer that question. Why? Because we need it. We need this sovereign one. Does that not follow? God knows full well what this world is like. 
He's well acquainted with what we experience here day by day by day. And in his wisdom, he's decided, I'm not going to take them out of it. I'm going to give them reinforcement in it. I'm going to give to them the Lord Christ and tell them to walk through it. What difference does it make to you that you have the Lord Christ? What difference does it make to you on the issue of trust? What difference does it make? For a lot of us, the answer is not much. Nice theory, I guess, but it really does not connect with where I live. He has given you one. Amidst all the pressures and threats and sorrows that you will face, he has given you one who knows all of them intimately, knows exactly what you need, has faced the pressures just like you have, promises to stand by you and support you. You're threatened, and he promises to be a shield to you. You thirst, and he promises to be the living water. You hunger, and he promises, I will be the bread of life for you. You hurt, and he will be your comforter. You fear, and he will be your encourager. Beside you in everything in life. He's there. He has been given to you, and he is in control of everything you face. He will never stand next to you and say, uh-oh, you're afraid? Me too. Didn't see that one coming. You see, I can stand beside my kids, and in a lot of stuff they face, I can say, I got that. We're okay here. Just for a very brief moment yesterday, I was trying to help Emma learn how to ride her bike. She already practically knew, so I didn't really have to do very much. But she was a little apprehensive, and I'm holding the back of the seat. I, I got that. That's okay. Not, not a problem. You're not going to fall down on the pavement. Don't worry about it. And there are other things that go bump in the night. I got that, too. And you got a scrape or a scratch. I got that, too. But there are some things that might happen to her that I would stand there and say, uh-oh. I would love to comfort you, but the best I can say is, let's pray. And let's go to the Lord Christ who has been given to us. He's got this. I'm not naive in saying that, and I know it's very easy for me to say that standing here in a nice, safe building in the United States. I read an email this week. Some of you probably got it too. I read an email this week about some persecutions going on in India pastor of a church in India. Church is attacked. He's dismembered and burned and left in front of his church. Wife and kids see it all. The Lord Christ was given to him too. He's got that. Didn't seem like he got that. Seems like he slipped up. No, he didn't. Everything that happened there is still under the Ephesians 1, all powers, all authority, all dominion, all things under the feet of Christ, him given to that pastor and that pastor's family. It's the same as to us. There's some 
mystery here that we need to be very careful to not try to grab hold of and tell God how he should act. When you say you've got that, you should get it this way. We need to be very careful to not tell God that. But we are supposed to look through all of the troubles of life, dramatic as that is or simplistic as some of my issues are, and say, he reigns. He is to be trusted. That begins to move us on to the second point. God has given to you a great gift. The Lord Christ who is not pretty helpful and somewhat strong, but is Lord and Christ, deliverer in might over everything that you face. What do you do with that? Second point. Gaze upon his glory and trust him. Gaze upon, that is look at. I say gaze, I use that word to, to differentiate from a glance. All of us have glanced. We need to gaze, look, and trust him. The obvious appropriate response here is a transferring of trust. Like the Ephesians did in verses 18 19, they set aside all of the formulas, all the mechanisms that they have used to manipulate and control their world. They say, we are not going to trust in all of that, and we are going to trust in Jesus. That's the change that happens in there. That's obviously the right response. Now, do you know anybody who has a spell book today? Probably not. But everybody you know works like this including yourself and including me. All of us say, who are believers, in God I trust. And in the doctors I trust. In God I trust and in my 401k. And in my college education. In God I trust and in the police. In God I trust and in my political maneuvering in the office place that's made me necessary. They won't lay me off. In God I trust and in my exercise program and regular physical checkups to save my life. And in the military to protect our country. And in our overseas alliances. We trust in horses and in chariots. In education and in money and in God mostly you see the divided thinking there and that is all of us that's Christians that's you and me now I am not saying that we shouldn't have doctors and we shouldn't go to them I'm not saying that and I'm not saying that we should strive for ignorance and incompetence so that God has more to overcome that it's not true the problem is not having those things and utilizing them. The problem is trusting them. Most of the stuff that we trust in and bank on for our security and protection and prosperity, most of that stuff's fine. Not all of it is, which is why they burned their scrolls. They realized this stuff's evil. We are actually dealing with demons. We need to get rid of that. And it may be that some of what you're trusting in is sin. 
The political maneuvering in the office place might be looked at as gossip and deceit and should be thrown away onto the fire, if you will. It might be that some of your financial success that you're trusting in is gained illegally. You should turn away from it. But most of it's not wrong. We're just not supposed to trust in it. Turn and repent. That's what the Ephesians are doing. They're turning and repenting, and they are transferring their trust onto Christ to protect them in this life, to provide for them in this life, take care of their hearts and their physical beings. We have a great gift, and he should be trusted. But I can't just leave it there at that because it's not that easy. You see that it's not that easy if you try to say to that pastor in front of that church in India, just trust Jesus. And the thought in his mind is, those machetes, I think they're real. And those people, I think they're angry. I could be wrong, but it seems like that. Just trust Jesus? Oh, okay, I'll trust Jesus. It's not that easy. It's not just a behavior that I undertake. It comes from somewhere inside. Look at this passage. Follow this through. Verses 18 and 19 are the turning, the transferring of the trust. Where do 18 and 19 find their their origin? In what are they rooted? 17. 18, 19 come from verse 17. All the people had come to hold the name of the Lord Jesus in high regard. I think great honor is what the NIV says, something like that. The name of Jesus had been extolled. They they lifted up. They they held Jesus as high. They feared. And that came from somewhere. Where did 17 come from? 11 to 16, which they had nothing to do with at all. You follow the chain there? 18, 19 come from 17. 17 comes from 11 to 16, which they had nothing to do with at all. God steps out and acts in amazing and alarming ways. And he shows forth Christ. And people are struck, Christian and non-Christian, like everybody in town, Jew and Gentile, like everybody is struck. And they say, oh my God, that's Jesus? You follow that? They didn't decide one day, you know, today I'm going to revere Jesus. They are struck. Oh, my God, that is Jesus, the Lord Christ. And the Christians say, then I know what I should do. Trust him. God moves on people's hearts. He shines. He extols Christ first, and then people extol Christ, and then people transfer their trust to him, seeing who he is. That's clear in the text. Follow the chain of events. And it fits perfectly with what the New Testament says about how we are changed. Think of Romans 12. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Something changes in here. 
2 Corinthians 3.18. We are transformed into the likeness of Christ. How? As we are beholding the glory of Christ. We see his glory, not just glance at it, but gaze at his glory, and we are changed. And then behaviors follow, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the hands act. I throw the stuff on the fire because I am internally, deeply persuaded that it's garbage and evil. Not because I was told to. The Ephesian Christians did not attend a sermon one Sunday morning where the pastor told them or where Paul told them, transfer your trust from Jesus, go home and burn your scrolls, and then they did that afternoon. That didn't happen. God moved. They were struck. Their perspective on God changed. And then they changed. May God work such a grace in us. May the triune God lift up God the Son in front of your eyes so that you say, oh my God, that's who he is? See, in most of our lives, the problem is we think way too little of him. We've got a cluttered countertop, and Jesus is one of the things there. May God move such that, that he rises up and all the other stuff is swept off, that he's levitating there and you're gripped. That's who he is? Oh, my God. He's the Lord Christ. That had happened to that pastor in India. He died praying, not running not fighting back, not taking as many of them with him as he could. He died praying, just like Stephen in Acts chapter 7. His face shone as he beheld Christ, and they stoned him to death. You've got to be gripped. Something's got to grab hold of you, and that's by the grace of God. We must transfer our trust, yes. And where does that come from? From God working on us. My prayer for you is that God would work on you and would show you Christ. I pray that for myself, too, that he would show us. That he would lift him up in our eyes. God must do that. And he commonly does it through means. He can't overcome our willful ignoring of him but he commonly uses means. We are to take the Scriptures. The reason he gives us the ministry of the Word is so that he can lift up Christ in our eyes in the Word. Use it. Pray that God will enlighten the eyes of your heart that you might know the tremendous hope you've been called to. You might know how much he values you and you might know the vast, immeasurable power that is for you. Power that is like what he used to raise Christ when he raised him up and seated him high above all authority and all dominion and then gave him back to you. Would he open your eyes that you would know that and you would see him standing beside you saying, I've got it, will you trust me? Come here, beloved. I've got it. Come here, beloved. Seek him in the means. Pray that he would open your eyes. 
God has given to his people a great gift of the Lord Christ. Gaze at him and trust him. Let me pray. Father, open the eyes of our hearts. Would you commission the Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we would see these things? I'm sure that the Ephesian Christians had heard these things sometime before they saw them. We've heard these things now. Would you give us grace to see them? And tomorrow and the next day, that the banner that flies over our lives might be in all things, God, I trust. Father, in your Son, you have secured our future. You have provided for our prosperity. You have protected us. Maybe not in the ways that we think, but in the ways that are right. Give us grace so we would see that and that we would trust you. And would we be so changed that it is a powerful testimony to others. Lord, give grace to my brothers and sisters here that we would set aside the things the world trusts in and trust in Christ and that that would be attention-grabbing. Lord, that's my hope and my prayer. Would you do that for the glory of Christ? the growth of your church, and for the good of your people. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.